Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. What do Wikipedia, an online encyclopedia, and Bitcoin, which is internet money, have in common? Both are open source projects. This type of project is playing an increasingly powerful role in many areas of life. Open source networks function by having open collaboration between their participants. What does that mean? An open source system may have a clearly defined goal. In Bitcoin's case, it's to serve as peer-to-peer money, that is, money that isn't controlled by any particular government or entity. In Wikipedia's case, the goal is to provide a neutrally written summary of mainstream knowledge. But having a clear goal is not the same thing as having a formal organisational structure. In an open source project, there is no boss issuing directions from above, and there's often very loose coordination between those taking part. All the same, these projects don't run on autopilot, there must be some human politics involved. So, what are those politics? To help answer that question, I've invited Jaya Clara Brecker, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Durham University's Geography Department, where she researches future crypto economics. Jaya has looked extensively at the politics involved in open source currency networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Jaya, thank you for joining us. I wanted to start by asking you when and uh, how you started looking at blockchains and distributed ledger technology. Hello, Paul. Thank you very much for the invitation. So I started looking at uh, blockchain, or let's say the first time I I read the Bitcoin white paper in any serious detail um, was in 2013. um, And I was working on a project at that point called Decent, which is a a European project Basically, it stands for Decentralized Citizen Engagement Technologies. Um, And the idea was to start developing some technologies where citizens would have more ownership and control over their data and how the data was used. Um, And part of that process was also looking at uh, economic data and looking at alternative and social currency models. Um, And so Bitcoin and uh, kind of blockchain-based systems were uh, kind of experimented a little bit with as part of that. Um, and I was a designer on the project. And, and so that was the first time I really read the Bitcoin white paper. And um, yeah, it caught my attention. It caught my imagination, like with so many other people. And so what are you working on now? Um, right now, I am working on a couple of different things. I finished a PhD uh, about four or five months ago now, um, which was titled Disassembling the Trust Machine, Three Cuts on the Political Matter of Blockchain. Um, and the PhD was really trying to understand the politics that's emerging in the blockchain space. So I started off really with this question of, uh, looking at the kind of breadth of people who were interested in, uh, and attracted to Bitcoin and blockchain systems and trying to make sense of that breadth of people and that kind of political spectrum, but also trying to make sense of, uh, the kinds of politics that come kind of implicit in and encoded within the technology, Um, And to be able to kind of uh, work out, uh, I guess, theoretical frameworks to understanding the potential political, social and ethical effects of of these kinds of technologies. Could you Um, talk a bit more about the, sorry to interrupt you, could you talk a bit more about the breadth of people? Because uh, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin white paper has a, or rather the genesis block of Bitcoin has a fairly pointed reference to bank bailouts. And a lot of people who were involved in Bitcoin early on came from the Occupy Wall Street movements or appear to have some links with uh, that um, that branch of um, 
you know, social politics or political movement. Um, and yet more recently, some people have said that Bitcoin has been very much associated with the libertarian or alt-right movements, particularly in the US. Uh, how do you see things and how, how have you been able to categorize the different groups of people who are involved in the cryptocurrency movement? I mean, yeah, it's um, it is a it is a, a breadth of people, and I think people who became interested in Bitcoin to some extent for similar reasons, meaning a disillusionment with the way that the financial crisis was handled, um, and a disillusionment with the ways that existing uh, democratic financial and monetary systems are governed. Um, but the kind of, let's say, conclusions that that followed from that, or the kinds of ideas that were drawn on. Um, as being kind of possible alternatives to that was hugely varied. Um, and like you say, there is a kind of uh, libertarian alt-right attraction to Bitcoin as well, absolutely. Um, but I guess like in a lot of the work that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to kind of recapture um, or or open up a bit more space for all the other political angles that that um, also exist in this space um, and that we're also attracted to this in, in in the first place. And that's like drawing also on a longer history of the development of peer-to-peer technologies that doesn't come from a purely libertarian perspective. And so while I think that a lot of the analyses um, that have gone into a kind of critical approach to Bitcoin and the kind of monetary and economic ideas that are implicit in the Bitcoin technical architecture, um, and, you know, I think a lot of the kind of analyses that that look at the way that it's informed by, um, uh, to a large degree, right-wing monetary and economic thinking, that's absolutely true. But there is plenty of other aspects to the technical architecture that uh, draws on a far more diverse set of ideas. And therefore, like, there is other possibilities in that space is, is what I try to argue. So Bitcoin hasn't, and other um, similar initiatives haven't lost their radical roots I don't see there being any, you can't draw any final conclusions about this space yet. For me, it's still too early. So rather than saying like whether, you know, whether than asking that whether Bitcoin has kind of lost its radical roots or not, I think it's more kind of appropriate to ask whether there is like still radical potential in this space and in the space of developing, uh, you know, crypto economic decentralized network systems. I, and I do think there's plenty of radical possibility there. Um, and in fact, I think like this space is more open than than it's ever been. And and let's let, I'd like to ask you about governance in general. Um, I, I looked up a definition of governance preparing for our chat, and uh, the definition I found talked about laws, norms, power, or or language involved in governing a particular system, or it could be a country or a company or whatever. Um, what does governance mean in the context of open source? systems like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? So um, governance to me in this space means how code is governed. Um, And it's actually a really interesting uh, space to try and understand a little bit more in detail because there's a kind of, uh, there's a kind of history to there's a kind of trajectory or maturing of the, the Bitcoin cryptocurrency and blockchain space around this question of governance. Um, So like, if you look at the kind of uh, decentralized um, uh, technical architecture, you know, decentralization is really at the core of the proposition. Um, and there's a lot of like ideas and uh, uh, kind of going into what decentralization is supposed to achieve. And one of the main things is to ensure that no single entity has full control over the network. Um, 
Now, when you kind of, if you're looking purely at the tech, at the, at the technical protocol and the technical layer, you can kind of like assess, you know, to what extent the network is actually decentralized or not. Um, but then at a certain point, you will be faced with a question of, you know, not only does the network on a technical layer need to be decentralized in order for the argument to hold true that no single entity holds complete power, but the actual writing of the protocols that govern that network also need to be to some degree decentralized. And so there, you know, I'm thinking of the kind of like the relationship between um, core developers uh, who have commit access to a reference client on GitHub, for example, and their relationship to miners and full nodes and others that need to adopt those, those changes in order for those changes to become an actual reality and become the kind of like functioning consensus protocol that the network operates along. Um, now, I, I know I'm probably <laughs> throwing in a lot of jargon here, and I don't know how much uh, kind of listeners will be familiar with the kind of space and how uh, protocols. Perhaps you could just uh, d- d- go into a little bit more detail there. So we're talking about so you t- when you mentioned core developers and GitHub and and uh, commit access. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, none of these things were set out in the Nakamoto white paper. These are things that all kind of evolved later on as people started to develop Bitcoin, use it, uh, try to solve problems. Is that correct? That is correct, and it's also it's a funny kind of point because the importance of um, these processes weren't recognized until uh, the communities were in crisis over what version of the protocol is considered to be the correct version. And it's a really kind of interesting, fascinating and unique kind of problem um, that has come up in a kind of like digital culture, let's say, where decentralization is really like the common like value, the common, the main principle of why people have come together to kind of create these, these technologies. And so... Um, like it's really been a kind of like negotiation over what decentralization actually means. And for the longest time, people thought it was enough to think about it just in terms of technical architecture. Um, But then the actual building maintenance and running of that technical architecture all of a sudden becomes very important um, when you have a conflict over a protocol change. And so in Bitcoin, we saw this in the Bitcoin scaling conflict, um, which was a kind of conflict uh, around a very specific technical change, but a technical change that could have pretty big, uh, significant uh, implications for how the project would would play out um, uh, longer term and who would have a kind of, for some people they saw as a threat in terms of like who has most power in the network, let's say. I mean, that's a kind of quick and simplified version of that story. So, uh, Jad, this came to a head in 2017 uh, and when when there was a basically two main camps, one that wanted to see Bitcoin more as a payment instrument with fewer constraints on the block size and others who wanted to see it more as a, uh, as maybe as a long-term savings vehicle, but one that's less suited for payment given that Bitcoin doesn't process that many transactions. Exactly, exactly. And so really like the, the point that I'm trying to make by bringing up that story is to is to drive home the fact that like there's nothing about, uh, you know, a technical architecture that's just neutral, right? Like technical decisions also have like real world um, effects and they really kind of, you know, and that, and so therefore there needs to be some kind of governance mechanism for how those decisions are made, who gets to make those decisions and who gets to kind of uh, decide around questions of trade-offs. Like um, technical decisions will, you know, can often mean that, uh, you know, a system will end up benefiting some people more than others or will end up, materializing one certain vision of how things should be over another. 
Um, and that's why the decision-making process around that is really important. So what have, what did we learn uh, from that scaling crisis of 2017? So I think for me, what's what's interesting to follow and what's still interesting to follow, and I don't have any kind of concrete conclusions about it yet, but is to kind of look closely at the very unique and particular forms of governance processes that are emerging around how uh, decentralized uh, technical development happens, right? And that's where I, you know, come back to this question of GitHub and commit access and miners and core developers and this kind of thing is that you see like a new set of actors and a new set of processes and methods through which um, conflict is negotiated. And so to kind of like put it slightly differently, I guess what I like to, or what I'm kind of thinking through at the moment is um, how, uh, you know, governance and the mediums through which governance happens is not a neutral process. Um, it requires a certain set of skills. It requires a certain kind of understanding of like basic principles and ethics. Um, it requires a kind of general consensus in the community around what the you know overarching purposes of of a project and so on. And so to put it kind of slightly differently, like I think you know uh, the governance processes that emerge around and through something like GitHub um, is no less or more neutral than like. Uh, democratic institutions as we know them it's you know each of these different forms of governance each of these different methods of governance require very specific sets of skills and capacities um, and are kind of the comfortable space of very particular types of people who are driven by you know sets of ethics and so on and i and i do actually want to make that argument that i think the way that democratic institutions are shaped today in terms of like um, parliaments and municipalities and so on and so forth. Like it, that's also a set of processes that are not neutral. They, they, it's a, it's a kind of, uh, it's a way of doing things that require certain skills, and some people are better at them than others. So, how far have we moved on since that 2017 crisis? Do you think that the way things were resolved have left have left the system as a whole in a reasonable state, or are, are there likely to be more conflicts ahead, given that some of these relationships between core developers and other people involved in the project are not really spelled out anywhere in formal terms? Um, I think things have definitely moved on. Like there, there is inevitably going to be more conflict. And I guess like the point that I'm really making here is on a high, like a larger level is that, you know, you, you don't ever arrive at a kind of like final resolution to all conflicts and, and disagreements, whether it's through code or whether it's through democratic institutions and voting or whatever else, like there is no, there is no final resolution to it. There, there will always end up being, you know, conflicts um, over some kind of protocol change or conflicts over the way that conflicts are resolved and so on. Um, but it's just interesting to see. I think what's important more is to, to make sure that uh, to be conscious of that process and to kind of engage with that process in, um, you know, a kind of rigorous uh, manner. And so, I think what's happened in, in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space since Bitcoin scaling conflict and also other major conflicts like the Ethereum DAO hack, um, if people want to look that up, that's another very interesting story. Um, I'd like to ask you about that in a second, but I just wanted to, uh, to ask you one, one more point about governance, because you could argue, I suppose, that there's a governance crisis going on across uh, Western democracies with the ability of certain actors to, to, to um, influence election results you know, by you know, via social media and so on. And uh, in the UK, we have a very real example of a breakdown of existing 
frameworks of governance uh, at the moment with with Brexit. So uh, maybe perhaps we've, you know, if we've been critical of open source projects like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, we should also also bear in mind that this is a more general problem that we're all facing. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, what can maybe more traditional institutions learn from the experiences we've 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 had with open source networks over the last decade or two? Um. I think, like, well, first of all, like, I, th- I, I just want to agree completely with you. I think we're really facing uh, huge legitimacy crises across, like, all kinds of different forms of governance. Um, I guess the way that I try and think things through that might be slightly unusual is um, I'm not looking for, like, the best form of governance that can then be replicated across all spaces and scales. Um, I think it's much more interesting to think about um, what is appropriate forms of governance for different types of spaces, networks, and scales. Um, and to put this differently, like there are certain things that are possible and can happen in a digital space that's actually slightly different and slightly more difficult in terms of kind of physical and territorial space. And here I'm thinking about um, something like forking, which was the, the conflict resolution mechanism um, in the Bitcoin scaling conflict and in the DAO hack, um, where basically, you know, if you don't agree with a certain way that a protocol is developing, um, you know, given that it's on GitHub, given that it's open source and so on and so forth, um, you can fork that and create a kind of new project um, uh, with your tweak to the code as you think is, is appropriate. Um, and that to me is a really, really interesting tool um, but it's it's less easy to fork uh, physical reality, isn't it, than it is a set of, of code. Um, and so therefore, that's why I'm thinking like, okay, there's different uh, appropriate um, governance mechanisms that work well for different types of spaces, different types of scales, and different types of kind of um, communities. Uh, and that's something that like I'm only beginning to map out now um, because one thing is to kind of draw a line around these different spaces and say, okay, for decentralized network protocols, a certain type of kind of governance is emerging um, in and through kind of, uh, relatively speaking, I guess, you know, GitHub, yeah, GitHub uh, uh, methods, but also plenty of others. Um, so does that mean, could I, sorry to interrupt you again, but that, does that mean that if we want to have, if we have a project that is supposed to work on a global basis, you mentioned scales. So let's imagine something very, very large. Does that mean we, we should uh, expect to have you know, a greater or a higher threshold for taking decisions. So a super majority of 70, 80% of network participants, however we measure them, would be required, whereas for something to work on a local scale, you might need just a simple majority. Um, yeah, but I'm not just thinking in terms of voting, I guess. Um, I think there's lots of other things that happen other than voting that has to do with um, uh, also a little bit like, um, let's say the ethics and principles implicit in the way that decision-making is happening. So for example, like um, in democratic institutions, there is like, there, there, you know, okay, let's put it differently. In, in different forms of governance uh, structures, they're usually informed by a kind of common assumption in a community around what is the kind of a, some basic set of principles that are kind of unquestionable, you know, that people kind of all agree on and they inform the um, reasoning behind why a kind of set of governance 
methods and spaces are are developed in the way that they are. Um, and I think in liberal democratic institutions, you have uh, some set of ethics and, and principles and so on um, that inform, you know, that have to do with democratic participation, certain freedoms, uh, certain kind of like freedoms of, of expression and forming of ideas and this kind of thing. Um, whereas like the sets of concerns in and for digital network systems, um, I would argue are largely kind of informed by a, a more like a cypherpunk ethic that have to do with what, are, you know, some basic ideas of what network systems are for. Some of these overlap with, with liberal democratic ideas for sure. And I think the interrelationship, what I was trying, the point I was trying to make um, just before, before you interrupted was about um, uh, how these different types of spaces, let's say kind of a physical territorial or a kind of state-based space um, sits in relation to a kind of a digital space the the relationship between those spaces are, is actually like a really complex thing to to understand and map out. Another thing that interests me is the relationship, um, or rather the areas of uh, research that these new network um, draw upon. So you, I, I saw from your website that you're working within the Department of Geography. Is that right? But I, yeah. I also, you know, it's pretty clear that uh, to grasp what's going on in these networks you need to have some background in computer science maybe cryptography but also finance economics anthropology history it seems to be a very challenging topic to get a complete grasp of yeah um and it's very much information and so you know people i think there isn't really a full grasp of it yet it's something that's really being shaped right now um, and so I would really urge people, especially coming from economic, monetary, social and history backgrounds to get involved um, because it's there's a lot of openness in the space to understanding what's happening from uh, more perspectives. Obviously, the space, um, you know, is predominantly kind of worked on by computer scientists, mathematicians and, and to some extent economists right now. Um, but there really is space and there really is need for. Uh, much more engagement um, across the board because it it does require um, uh, like a, a, a truly like cross disciplinary um, engagement for it to, to kind of make sense. And when you say to people to get involved, how do you mean? Um, well, to start off with, I guess you, it's just it's really a bunch of reading, but then also like testing and getting in touch with with projects and just uh, speaking to people. I mean, it's. Um, and then from there, develop, you know, develop some serious research to test the assumptions that are floated about in the field. Um, because there's so a lot of the work that I do um, tends to have to do with trying to kind of clarify uh, a lot of conflations that tend to happen. So um, this space uses certain words like trust, consensus, decentralization and so on quite heavily. Um, but there is not much understanding of uh, the very specific meanings of these words in the context of network engineering and how those differentiate really quite significantly from what these words mean in a social and institutional sense um, and the relationship between the two and how the two kind of affect each other. Um, and so that's a lot of the work that I'm doing and that requires like kind of speaking to two very different sets of audiences. You know, one is speaking to a kind of broader mainstream audience around to try and explain, you know, when a computer engineer that works on decentralized network talks about trust and trustlessness, this is really what they mean, you know? 
um, and to try and kind of make that clear to a kind of broader mainstream audience. And then vice versa, you know, speaking to computer engineers, cryptographers and mathematicians and say when you were, use the word trust um, uh, in the context that you use it, it doesn't always translate directly into the way that it plays out in social, cultural and political life. Um, and so that's like the area that I'm working heavily on. And I think there's, again, there's plenty more uh, angles on that. So, you know, for someone coming from a kind of like political sciences background or from a kind of monetary theory background or whatever else, again, it's to try and look at what's happening and what's being encoded specifically within like computational systems and how is that different from, but overlapping with um, how these kinds of uh, sets of ideas play out in social, political and economic systems as they exist today. Um, there's really a lot of work to be done in that area. So um, we're, we're still some way from having a common language that would work for all the participants in the networks. Yeah, we are, we're some way from having a common language. Um, but I think it's, it's also about, um, I don't think it's just about common language. I think it's, it's really also about um, understanding uh, the qualitative effects of encoding things into decentralized computational systems, you know, and it's really, it's an unknown field. Like it requires a lot of experimentation and, and careful um, assessment, you know, and that's, that's another thing that I try and do in the field is to push for much more clarity on uh, concepts and metrics. So, you know, when people say, okay, we're building, you know, a decentralized protocol to do this and this, um, to really try and kind of challenge people and like, okay, so why why decentralized? Um, what do you assume to be the effects and outcomes of, of uh, decentralization? And can we kind of spell those out clearly so that in five years time, we can actually go back and assess whether that's happened or not? You mentioned earlier the, 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 the DAO hack of Ethereum in 2016 and its consequences. Uh, that was uh, when Decentralized Autonomous Organization, DAO, was launched with very ambitious uh, plans to, to basically allow for a new form of corporate entity to be launched uh, and they would op uh, operate with the iron will of unstoppable code. Um, it was the, kind of the description at launch. But then within a few days or weeks, it got hacked and the, the, the uh, Ethereum had to be forked into two versions, one, with, one of which uh, kind of unwound those changes and, and took the proceeds of the hack away from the the hacker. So uh, to an outside observer, this might seem to defeat the argument of that a, a decentralized uh, network can kind of operate according to the laws of code, that, that you know, there might always be a need for human intervention and that people can, with, with, uh, with, with, you know, with perhaps an outsized uh, presence in the network, can rewrite the rules, as it were. So what, what do you think we can learn from that episode? Um, first of all, yes, like I think that that is one of the the big lessons that um, there is no such thing as kind of you know f eliminating the human in any final manner because um, as the DAO hack uh, showed, you know at some point there was a human that wrote a piece of code or wrote a smart set of smart contracts, um, and you know mistakes happen in that process, and not only do mistakes happen in that process, but also um, even if we somehow say that the writing of that smart contract is perfect or done without any flaws, um, there is always the question of how that plays out in reality and how technical systems play out in reality is hugely unpredictable un and uneven depending on 
the conditions that it's launched in and so on. And depending on how kind of like history progresses, you know? Um, and so the need to be able to kind of maintain, update, correct for, and so on, um, any piece of code, any smart contract and so on is not something that's going to go away. Um, but that's not to say that like the whole project should be thrown out. It's more to say that, um, uh, what's interesting is not the question is not the statement that code can replace humans and replace all kind of legal institutions and, and DAOs replace kind of governance and so on. The, the interesting point is more to look at how DAOs and smart contracts and these kinds of systems reconfigure the way that humans come together to govern themselves and their systems. Um, so I guess my argument is uh, to look at things kind of qualitatively in terms of the relationship between human and systems in this case, rather than always assuming that, you know, uh, either humans or machines should take over. Right. So, cause it, you know, I think the debate when it comes to um, uh, DAOs and, and a certain kind of very strong ideological tendency in the blockchain space, um, it becomes very polarized very quickly. So, you know, you'll have some people that are very much like on the side of that, you know, artificial intelligence and, and mathematically based uh, systems um, are superior to humans and should therefore take over. You know, this is this is a real uh, and existing very strong ideological current in the space. Um, and then you have the kind of like reactions to that, which is, you know, kind of shock and horror. No, you know, humans are. Um, important were the center of the world or some some other kind of um, uh, reaction to that and I guess what I'm I'm trying to kind of bring the debate back to a little bit more of a grounded uh, place where we where we try and understand what actually happens in action and to be a little bit like well it's always a, a bit of both right it's always us um, and the things that we work with and operate through um, and uh, the interesting, the interesting thing to analyze, the interesting thing to look at is um, how does you know a DAO or a set of smart contracts or whatever else change what's possible in the way that we collaborate and govern things, um, and to look at the some of the characteristics of what it can do differently from from other ways that we collaborate and govern things. And, and if we could look forward ten or twenty years, uh, how do you think uh, politics may change as a result of these new technologies? Oh well, <laughs> um, nice easy question of, to finish with. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, I think there is. I think we're going through, like I think we're going through an absolutely incredible period of time right now, where really a lot of you know, both political, um, economic and financial systems are being renegotiated, you know, geopolitically, technologically, um, at local and global scales. Um, and, you know, the kind of outcome of that process, I think, is really difficult to assess right now. Um, but it does feel like more people need to get involved in these in these debates. It does feel like something that we need to shine a bit more of a light on. Um, so if we're going uh, back two or three years, a lot of people was from the traditional financial or economic system were saying, this is just a bubble, it's a, it's a fad, it's going to go away. Now people are taking it much more seriously and we need to look more seriously at the implications of these inventions. 
Yeah. Um, yes, I would say so, most definitely. And I think you know, the, you know, the Libra coin definitely also kind of put put this question back on people's agenda. You know, of um, who should be governing uh, systems that determine global value flows. Um, it's definitely something that has got everyone's attention again. Chai, thank you very much for joining New Money Read podcast and um, hope to chat to you again soon. Thank you. listening to this new money review podcast the future of money in 30 minutes you can support new money review by visiting patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n forward slash new money review and becoming a patron of the site your support will help us cover this fast-growing area of finance independently and in depth you can also support us in cryptocurrency our wallet addresses for bitcoin ether and litecoin are published on the home page of our website in the right margin.